Once again, uh, disciples, uh, wonderful to be together today. The room is uh, a little off kilter, is it not? It it would appear that uh, most of you sat on the left side. So um, those of you on the other side of the room have to, you know, really, really balance things out. It is a pretty exciting week in the life of our church, if you're not already aware. We've got a couple things happening this week, the first of which is yesterday, we had Folsom Community Service Day, and a number of you were out there serving the city, so way to go on that. Good job, disciples. We are a little smaller group today, so I'm gonna have to have you engage with me, all right? You're gonna, nobody can uh, be dead weight today, all right? You're gonna have to clap, you're gonna have to talk, all that. Uh, Also, yeah, thank you, Vincent. Uh, Also, uh, this week, in fact, beginning uh, just this coming week is our new season of life groups kicking off. So uh, let's hear for life groups. Um, Raise your hand if you're already signed up for a life group and you're already planning to go. Love to see that. If you're not already signed up to be part of a life group, let me um, say with um, great zeal that this is our disciple-making engine at Disciples Church. If, if your intent is to become or to continue to be a disciple of Jesus, uh, I have news for you. Um, a life group is where it's gonna happen. Uh, Sunday mornings are incredible. And what happens together as we commune together, as we worship together, as we bring together what it is God would call us to bring, amazing things happen in shifting the atmosphere. But the process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ will uh, happen best in a life group. Uh, and it will happen quickest, and you will actually see the results of your life begin to transform. Sometimes even in the course of eight or nine weeks, you begin to see yourself change. Um, and so please connect in a life group. Signups are out on the table out front, and we are excited to gather in those groups all over. Today, we also have another first or another new thing we begin is a new series that kicks off this very day called People Who Bring. Uh, Throughout history, we find story after story and story after story after that of God inviting uh, in a relentless fashion, God inviting his people to change and to shift the atmosphere they're in through this very simple thing of what we bring. That what you bring or what you refuse to bring is shifting the atmosphere of every room you enter, whether you know it or not. When you step into your home at the end of a long day, when you step into work at the beginning of a busy day, when you step into this building to gather for church, when you step into any room or environment you step into, you hold, because God has given it to you, you hold the ability and the power to shift the atmosphere simply by what you bring to that room. This is uh, one of those things that is shocking at times, the, the amount of influence God has laid upon us as his people. Unfortunately, uh, whether you would admit it or not, you and me and we are broken. We uh, suffer from deep levels of suspicion and sometimes wrestle through cynicism. We are unknowingly and sometimes knowingly simply just lazy and don't want to bring what it is God would call us 
to bring into any given room. And when we think that way, when we think in, in this way, because of our suspicion or because of our laziness or because of our cynicism, we look at these things that God is calling us to bring to any given room and we look at those as if God is lacking in some way and he needs us and it rises up our suspicion. God, you need me to do that for you. I don't know. I don't want to serve any God that needs that for me. And when we take this bait, when we begin to believe this way, when we begin to think that way, we naturally withhold from God. God, I'm not going to bring that thing that I know you want me to bring because I'm suspicious of what you might be up to with that, God. God, I'm not gonna bring that thing that you want from me. I'm gonna protect because I don't know, you might not actually be good. You might not actually be the abundant loving God that the Bible says that you are. And so we withhold and we protect and we defend what we think is our right. We fight for what we deserve. You ever seen somebody post on social media? Maybe it was me who did it, uh, post on social media. So excited for this vacation to Cancun. I deserve it. I don't deserve it, what? <laughs> who deserves a trip to Cancun? You don't deserve it. What we have coming to us is not what we sometimes argue for. Worse yet, these scenarios that cause us to not bring what God would intend for us to bring. We sometimes view God's invitation for us to be a people who bring as some sort of tool of manipulation by this God that we sometimes even fear may not exist at all. God, you only want me to bring that or you only want me to arrive with this offering or you only want me to contribute that because you're trying to manipulate me, God. You're trying to force me into something. Or the people who call out your name are trying to. There's probably a myriad of other reasons why we don't bring what God's called us to, but a, a simple and an, a, and an intentional study of scripture tells a really different and joy-filled story about God's desire to shape us into a people who bring. A people who bring peace to relationships. And when we bring peace to relationships, we see the whole room shift. You, you enter a conversation that's been snarky over text all day long and sharp and then you arrive all by eyeball to eyeball and what you expect from that other person is them to muscle up or to shut down or to protect or withhold or manipulate and instead they say, you know what, I, I wasn't peaceful today and I apologize for being a butthole. <laughs> sometimes no better word. And I, I want in this moment to bring peace. Yeah, have you ever had anybody keep a clenched fist when you arrive that way? Have you ever even tried it? This is the invitation in relationship. Conflicts are resolved when someone in the relationship brings reconciliation. When the conflict has been going on for so long and you finally sit down eyeball to eyeball and say, hey, there is something between us and my intent is to bring reconciliation. 
what has to happen between you and me for reconciliation to happen? We might not agree when we leave this table. We might still disagree, but I want to be reconciled to you because I'm convinced that that is what God would call me to bring is reconciliation. Not that you would own my rights, not that you would give me what I deserve, not that you would help me protect what I'm protecting, but that you would simply enter into reconciliation. Over the course of these next several weeks as we lead up to our glorious 10th anniversary celebration. November 3rd, people, mark your calendars. I got a text message from somebody the other day who's been in our church for 10 years and said, hey, I had no idea anniversary Sunday was November 3rd. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you. I only said that because they've been with us 10 years and I love them dearly. I'm like, it's on the bulletin every week. And the person said, I don't read that thing. It's on social media. I don't really go on there. It's on the website. You built the website. I don't really look at that thing. November 3rd, people. It's gonna be a party. And uh, we don't usually give around gifts around here, like sometimes a donut hole, and you gotta get here early if you wanna be lucky enough to get one. But like, I'm telling you, November 3rd, people, there's gifts. Like, it's gonna be good, I'm telling you. You're gonna wanna be here. You're gonna wanna bring everybody. We even rented different chairs so that we can fit like 50 more chairs in this room. They're really, really small chairs, so whole 30 maybe. Um, I'm just saying, um, uh, anyway. The next uh, five weeks, we are um, going to knock on five different doors. They're not the only five doors, but we have five weeks. So we're gonna knock on five, okay? We're gonna knock on five different doors that I'm convinced that behind those doors lie entire museums full of the beauty and glory of God that we will never see if we don't knock on that door. Some of those doors are peace in your house. Some of us don't know how to bring peace to our house. And we're gonna learn from scripture, how do you bring peace to your house? And when you open that door of peace in your house, you're gonna find out things are really awesome at home. Yeah. We're gonna find out what happens when we knock on the door of generosity and we commit to a first fruits offering every single payday. And that the museum of God's experience and glory and presence and joy that is opened to us when we will knock on that door. There's three other doors as well we're gonna knock on. I, I hope that you'll be with us all these weeks. Let us over the course of the next five weeks reacclimate ourselves around God's plan for us as a people who bring. Let us reacclimate our lives around this picture that God has painted for us for eternity to be a people who bring. If you've got a Bible, turn with me uh, to a book that I'm not sure we have ever cracked on this stage before. Uh, the uh, prophet of Zephaniah. Go to Zephaniah chapter three. If you're using YouVersion, uh, it, it'll be loaded up for you there. Go to YouVersion Go to uh, down in the bottom right to our events page and uh, click Disciples Church. It'll be there for you. Otherwise, Bibles are there. Zephaniah is towards the end of the Older Testament. If you go right in the middle, you'll probably find Psalms. Go to the right a little bit and you'll find Zephaniah there. Zephaniah chapter three. Zephaniah chapter three. And uh, as we go there, would you pray with me as we continue? 
Father, Son, and Spirit, I am um, so encouraged by what you're doing in us as a people. And God, I know that you're not giving me the whole glimpse. Uh, you're giving me a bit of the glimpse and I'm gonna contribute what I see and the rest of us are gonna contribute what we see and we are going to become people who bring. And so in these moments uh, right now that follow God, may we bring a clarity of your scripture to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Shape us into who that you would have for us to be, we pray. In the precious and powerful name of Jesus, we pray, amen. We began today's uh, worship service for those who were here before that first song in Zephaniah chapter three and Calvin read verses 14 through 17. And, and even in those verses that, uh, that began our worship service today, we see God's people as a people who sing aloud. God's people is a people who are glad and who rejoice with all their hearts. We see that the Lord himself will live among us and that there will come a day when troubles will be over and when fear will no longer control any of our thinking or living or behavior. These prophetic words from Zephaniah paint a pretty robust picture for Israel of that day, of a better day that was to come. And this day was realized if only in brief moments for those who got to experience in person the life and teaching of Jesus. This, this better day that is promised in Zephaniah chapter three and in so many other books of the prophets across scripture. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth arrives on the scene and people begin to experience little moments, little glimpses, little snippets of time of that glorious day that the prophets spoke of. These moments that were unthinkable in the natural realm. A young couple of men had been fishing all night and got completely skunked. They come in with their nets and they, roll them up and there were no fish in them. And Jesus arrives in John chapter 21 and says, hey guys, how'd it go last night? And they say, badly, we caught nothing. And Jesus says, go back out, bring your nets again. And the invitation to those men is to bring something, to bring their nets back out to the water, to go back to the work, to do the work of dropping their nets. And the story tells us in John 21 that they pull up more fish than they can nearly count. The picture of when Jesus arrives on the scene and that is matched with a people who are willing to bring what they're called to bring. Miracles begin to break out because they were bringers. A father gripped with fear in Mark chapter five over the ensuing death of his daughter runs to Jesus, a passage we may look at a little bit later if there's time. And, and he arrives at Jesus in a crowded plaza and says, Jesus, Jesus, my daughter is dying or maybe already dead. You've got to come heal her. And Jesus says, okay, I'll, I'll come with you. And the man brings Jesus to the daughter. Yet again, a man who's willing to bring what he needs to bring so that Jesus and the life of God can cohabitate with the broken life of death. 
In the midst of that, a woman, you may recognize the story, touches his garment and Jesus is in the melee of people and says, hey, what power just went out of me? What, what, what happened? Who touched me? And they're like, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. He goes, no, I felt the power go. And, and a woman had been healed. And just then somebody comes and goes, all right, well, you've been dilly-dallying around Jesus, talking to people and being all nice. In the meantime, the girl died. And Jesus says, no, she hasn't. And he looks to Jairus and he goes, take me to your daughter. Have faith. And he brings Jesus. You see, we focus on the Jesus part as we should. We should never minimize the Jesus part. But we forget the we bring part of the power of God. God, I want you to bless my life. I, I want you to provide for my finances. And God says, good, I want you to bring all of them to me. And let's look at it. Go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not bringing it to you, God. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give a little bit of it to my work and lose control of it. But God, you don't understand. I don't actually have enough already. That's why I'm coming to you. He goes, yeah, yeah, no, I know. I know you don't have enough already because it's all mine. I kind of like, no. So I want you to bring a little bit to me and lay it at my feet. And, and then we're gonna work this out together. And I'm now gonna be in control. And you're gonna lay that over. You go, well, okay, that was cute. I'm not willing to do that, Jesus. He goes, okay. And in the words of Dan Krause, have your way has their way. Yeah. You see, we, I, like, it's really romantic and nostalgic in the midst of worship when beautiful Ellie and Calvin and the band are leading us to say, yes, have your way until we're in traffic on Monday. I want to have my way. A woman of the uh, lowest social standing in all of society in the days of Jesus. A Samaritan. So lowly in her community that she doesn't even come out during the day. This is the woman who shops at Winco at two in the morning. And not because that's the only time she can get free time. It's because she wants to be seen by nobody. And in her village, the time that you could come out and draw water and be sure that you would rub shoulders with nobody was the middle of the day, high noon, if you will. And Jesus arrives at that well in John chapter four and he says to the woman in the midst of a long conversation, you come here to draw water, but the water I give you, you will never thirst again. And we see this woman's life get transformed, but what does she do? She brings this message back to her entire village and they all give their lives to Jesus because she's willing to bring what it is God has asked her to bring. I haven't even got to the text yet today. The bottom line in this, if you're taking notes, um, it, it might be in your U version. I, I, honestly, I don't remember. But if you're taking notes, write this down that this is the cultural climate in the kingdom. This is the cultural climate in the kingdom. The power of God meets a willing participant and they co-op together to deliver and announce the kingdom of God. Listen, the beauty of this is, guys, we don't have to build the kingdom. It's not on our backs. We don't have to expand the kingdom. And I've even been guilty of using that language. We don't build it. We don't expand it. We announce it. Our 
our privilege is to say the kingdom of God is alive and well and his power wants to meet your life. And I will commit to bring what God asked me to bring so that you can encounter the transforming power of God. That's what we're invited to, guys. So where God is present, he brings peace and joy and healing and kindness and abundance. And that's why when they would rub shoulders with Jesus, they would say, this is unlike anything I've ever experienced. And the only response to an encounter with Jesus is I have to follow you or I have to kill you in my life. There will be no, nobody meets Jesus and goes, well, that was cute. That was nice. Go to Zephaniah 3, uh, 18. We pick up this prophetic word that Zephaniah offers to the church. And in verse 18, we gather up where Calvin left off at the beginning of the day. And this is God speaking. He says, I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals and you will be disgraced no more. All this work you've been doing to put together these four festivals a year and for some of them like six, but at least for all the work you've been putting into that so that you can atone for sin and so that you can celebrate my provision and so that you can announce the Passover and so that you can summon my presence. All, all of that, that always seems to come up short, all of the efforting and work. You'll no longer live in disgrace. Verse 19, and I will deal severely with all who have opposed you. I will save the weak and the helpless ones. I will bring together, highlight bring. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to the former exiles wherever they've been mocked and shamed. And on that day, verse 20, and on that day, I will gather together and I will bring you home again. I'll bring you home again. In the midst of that conflict, in the midst of that terror of the night, in the midst of gripping worry, in the midst of fear, in the midst of rage, if we could just slow down the game of life enough this week to say, this ain't home. This is not my home. And I don't mean it like some existential earth is not my home stuff. I think sometimes we think that way. Heaven is my home, earth is not. All that's true. But I think that sort of thinking often leads us to a pretty individualistic and like fatalistic kind of way of thinking. I mean, this moment of thinking where I'm thinking from hate or from fear or from worry, that ain't my home. That's not what I've been made for. That is not how God designed me. That is not the way the kingdom of God operates. I am currently operating outside of the economy of the kingdom and any economy outside the economy of the kingdom will fail. Behind me uh, sits a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and for those, there's been a lot of Bible humor going on today. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you didn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so, or you died. Like there was one story, like one guy accidentally, they're carrying it and it slipped, right? And the guy accidentally reaches out to steady it and he dies. And so I asked Josh earlier today, I asked Josh earlier, hey, will you bring out the Ark of the Covenant? Put it on, he's like, dude, I ain't touching that thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, I mean, he knew this, but it's not real. It's just a replica. If it were real, somebody would have broken in by now because the real ark was covered in gold. 
and we'd be rich. <laughs> we could finally replace that carpet tear in the middle of the room with gold. Fresh Prince Bel Air got nothing on us, right? Uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And this was this thing that was carried around. If you've got your YouVersion app, I, I gave you a link to a, a pretty cool study. Uh, it leaves a few things out, but it's a pretty cool study. If you wanna go down the hole on the Ark of the Covenant, forgive me, I don't, I don't have time in my remaining 11 minutes and 48 seconds to um, go through it. Uh, we have this new technology in back and there's a countdown thing up there telling me how much time I have. Um, and I asked them to do it. So uh, yeah, and it makes me wanna not use it anymore. Uh, <laughs> but you'll all be really glad that I'm using it. So the Ark of the Covenant was brought with them and uh, God gives these instructions, Exodus 25, if I'm not mistaken, gives these instructions to build this Ark and inside the Ark, there were a number of things and on top of the Ark were some angels, uh, you know, some gold angels, they weren't real angels floating. Uh, and inside the Ark was a pot of manna, which represented the reminder of God's provision and love for his people Israel. As they came out of Egypt, manna had fallen from heaven every morning and it was their sustenance and provision. And, and so a little bit of manna was in there to remind them that God is my lover and my provider. In there, there was a, a piece of Aaron's rod, which represented this picture that, that God will always provide a leader for me and shepherds for me to lead me towards God. There's so much symbolism. I'm just mentioning a few. And, and this Ark of the Covenant was taken with them as they journeyed as a reminder that God's presence was with them. And then eventually it was settled in the temple. The instructions for building and assembling the ark were incredibly specific. The dimensions and how tall and wide and long it would be. The symbolism goes far deeper as I mentioned, but just to give you a little bit of a taste of this. And, and this Israel would have known this intimately, this picture of the ark. And my point in all that, what is your point, Steve? God was inviting his people from the minute he released them from slavery in Egypt to be people who bring. I've, I want you to create this Ark of the Covenant and I want you to bring it everywhere. And, and the symbolism, like I say, is so dynamic, but you, and I don't want any one person to touch it because individualism doesn't work in the kingdom of God. So it's gonna take four of you and you're all gonna grab a corner and you're gonna carry it. So you're gonna have to experience my presence in community. It doesn't work on your own. And I want you to bring my presence with you just about everywhere you go. And then when you do settle on a temple, Solomon puts it in this holy of holy place that the presence of God lives in the holiest of the places. And so we come back to this text in Zephaniah that paints this beginning picture of what it will be like when God's way wins out all the time. In verse 19, we're reminded that God will bring together those who have been chased away. That God is a bringer of people together, especially people who've been chased off. 
And then verse 20, God will bring us home again. So he will not only bring together a people in community who were once chased off, he will bring that community of people home. Back where the will and way of God wins out every time. When it becomes second nature to usher in the likeness of Christ into every moment. And this will happen in community. Second Samuel, chapter 14, verse 14. It says, all of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. It gets better, I promise. <laughs> but God, but God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways. It's almost like this sneaky, I don't know, strategic. He devises ways to bring us back when we've been separated from him. God's in the business of devising ways to bring you back to him when, when life has been separated from him. And so with all of that in mind, this, this call of you and I that goes all the way back to Israel and, and certainly even before the people of Israel, but it goes all the way back to there. There's this ongoing picture that God has designed you and I to be bringers as he is a bringer. And because we are created in God's image, the father has sent the son and the son has sent the spirit and the spirit now sends the church, us, we are sent to be a people who bring the will and ways of God into every situation. So we don't get to, I'm, I'm gonna bring the ways of God to everything except my Snapchat. I'm gonna bring the will and way of God to everything except at work because if I act like a Jesus person at work, I'm gonna get crushed. No, I'm, I'm gonna bring the will and way of Jesus to everything I come to. And not in some like bumper stickery way, but in an authentic, Jesus, how, how do I bring your economy to this situation? How do I bring your will and way? We're called to be co-operators, if you will, with God in the work of restoring all of creation. What a beautiful invitation. We are bringers of good news to the poor. We are the ones that carry the presence of God into situations that would otherwise be completely empty and totally hopeless and divisive and dark and ugly. And God says to us, will you cooperate with me to bring my kingdom presence into that? So we are the people who bring together those who have been chased away and to bring home those who have strayed. This is the call to you and I at a global scale, kind of at a 30,000 foot elevation. As we kick off this series, the 30,000 foot elevation is that you and I, because we've been made in the image of God and because we are cooperating with the work of God to restore all of creation, we are the people who bring together those who have been chased off and bring home 
those who have strayed. Now, I mean, I hope and pray that that's inspiring to you. Your faces would tell a slightly different story, but I'm gonna just assume you're hoping there's still donuts out there or you're thinking about the burrito you're gonna eat later. Like this should inspire us. This should excite us. This should be like, wow, okay, so my life is not just about going to work every day and then get my kid to soccer. Like I've got something. And it doesn't mean that I don't go to work every day and I don't bring my kid to soccer. I do all that. But now... Now I get to announce the kingdom of God in those settings. Now I get to cooperate with God. I get to walk onto the soccer field, you know, with your Starbucks or your ladies, your sneaky little white wine in a Starbucks cup. I know you're rolling. I know that's not peach iced tea. How's it going? And now you get to bring the kingdom of God. You're sitting on the sideline watching a game and, and you see that single parent down the lane and you're going, man, I wonder, you know, I'm gonna go sit next to them today and I'm just gonna get to know their story a little bit. And you're sitting there watching kids. Soccer's not fun, guys. Don't, it's not cool to watch. www.footballrulessoccersucks.com, right? Nobody knows the reference, do they? Okay. And we're sitting there watching a soccer match and now we have like, cosmic purpose. I'm going to go learn a little story. You go, hey, you know, you know, I haven't met. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Simple question. Have you ever heard the answers that follow that? Those of you who are therapists are like, that sounds like work. Um, <laughs> we'll do it with you. How about that? There's a hitch though in these closing minutes. There's a significant obstacle that stands in our way of being bringers in becoming the kinds of people who bring. We first have to arrive at the throne of grace that Hebrews talks about, at the place where we meet with God. And we have to say to God in in an authentic heart as best we know how, I am yours. I'm yours. And that means I'm probably not gonna always get my way. And that means they're not always gonna celebrate me when I come in the room like I think they should. And that means I'm probably gonna lose some power along the way. And that probably means that I'm gonna have to work for a moron at some point in my life. And that probably means that my husband or my wife or my girlfriend or boyfriend or best friend is going to treat me like garbage every once in a while that I'm not gonna fight for my way because I am yours. I belong to you, Jesus. And not because you coerced me into it, not because you threatened me, because I see your kingdom and it's better than mine. That, That this life with Jesus is the best of all possible lives. Heaven is to come, there's no question. And hell is a real alternative. And hell is reserved for anybody who insists on being there. Nobody's gonna end up there and be surprised, by the way. Okay? The only people who are going to be eternally separated from God are people who insisted on being eternally separated from God. I'm convinced of that. We don't serve some angry God who's like, sweet, I get to keep another one out. So we look at that kingdom, we go, man, I want that, I want that world. So the woman at the well, 
had to humble her hardened heart over years of being marginalized, over years of being objectified, over years of being thought less of. And in that moment, she had to have her heart turned back to the very community that hated her so, so much that she wouldn't even draw up water with them. And something had to shift in her immediately and she had to humble herself and go back to them and say, I just met a man who told me everything I ever did and you've got to have his living water. She had to bring herself. The father of the dying girl who begs Jesus to heal his daughter had to first drop all of his pride. He was a really high-ranking guy and he had to drop all of his esteem and he had to risk that he could be wrong. And he had to go into the public square and cry out in desperation as a man who never needed anybody's help and say to Jesus, I can't do it on my own. You've got to do this, Jesus. You've got to do it. Give me your arm. We got to go to my house. And so it goes with you and me. When we're faced with the difficulties of this world, when we're staring down the trials of this life, will we seek to lay ourselves at the feet of the ways of Jesus and usher his will and way into a situation? Or will we insist on our own way? If you haven't dug in to Mark chapter five, take the time to. It's in your U version. I, I gave you the whole section of scripture I'm referencing. And see the picture there happening. Find yourself in this story. Jesus, who am I in this story? Am I the woman who needs healing? Am I the dad who's crying out for his daughter? Am I the dying daughter? Am I the naysayers in the crowd? Find yourself in that story. Because at the end of that story in verse 40, it says the crowd laughed at him. And so Jesus makes them all leave and he takes them in the room and he heals the daughter, 12 years old. Stand up, you're fine. Yesterday I attended um, one of the most tragic funerals I've ever attended in my life. Uh, a man who was very, very much a father figure to me uh, during my teenage years when uh, my dad and I, my, my, my earthly dad and I were um, at odds with one another and um, not on terms. And this other man stepped into my life and was a pastor to me and a beautiful father figure that really drew me back to my earthly dad eventually and we reconciled. My dad and I are so good now. Love you, dad, if you're listening, if you made it this long without falling asleep. <laughs> He's got this really comfy chair and he just always falls asleep, so. But I sat at this funeral uh, yesterday and uh, this dear friend of mine who mentored me and loved me and treated me as a son of his own, his 27-year-old son, a husband, a father of two little girls, three and one years old. That's you. Was killed in a car accident 10 days ago. And uh, I sat towards the back um, and I watched my friend walk in right just before the service began. And you know that moment where you just feel somebody's anguish? And I wasn't even thinking of my sons at that moment. I just felt his pain of a life lost. 
And funerals are kind of weird, right? If you haven't been to a lot of them, uh, maybe you're unfamiliar or maybe you are, but funerals are weird because um, they're such toothpaste moments, uh, you know, because the squeeze is on and the pressure is high and what's actually inside a person comes out. And just people say the stupidest stuff at funerals. And they usually do it while on a microphone. And you're like, oh my goodness gracious. These people would get up and one guy got up and had five minutes and talked for 20 minutes about himself the whole time. And all he did was talk about the company he built. And it had nothing to do with the young man who died or it was just wacky. And another one got up and at the end of this funeral of just hundreds of people in mourning and sadness and none of us know what to say and none of us know what to do. The dad sitting in the very front stands up and grabs a handheld mic and turns around on the floor and just says, thank you for coming. And it was the first moment he had turned around and looked at the crowd to actually see who was there. And he just started weeping and said, oh my gosh, Wayne. And he, Wayne was my bass player in my band 20 years ago. Oh my gosh, Wayne, you're here. And he just starts doing that. Just overcome and overwhelmed with the power of people who had come together to carry in the goodness of God. Because in that moment, as a dad who lost his son, the presence and goodness of God didn't feel real tangible. But there were 200 people in there all holding the side saying, God is still good and we are here with you. I went downstairs at the end of the funeral and I, I didn't have it in me to say anything. I just sat in the back row in my nicest suit and hoped that just me in a suit would say that I care about you because I don't wear a suit for nobody. Uh, and we went downstairs to this little old church fellowship hall where people ate food and I, I just sat there self-righteous and a little judgmental going, how can you eat? Like people are just piling plates of food. Like just how many spinach rolls can a person eat? And I'm thinking, I get, there's no way. I don't even want to drink water. And I watched this father move around the room and attend to others at his own son's funeral. The squeeze was on and who he actually was was coming out. And he went up to sweet little old ladies who had rocked his son in the nursery at church who were crying and he cried with them. And then he went to others who were awkward and didn't know how to deal with funerals. And he told a joke. I heard him tell a joke about how he used to say all the time, his son was always late. He's late for everything. He's been late to his own funeral. And then he told the joke that at the uh, graveside service, the hearse got lost and was 10 minutes late. And he got up and he said, see, I told you. <laughs> he was late to his own funeral. And I thought that takes a well of character that is otherworldly. He stepped into a time where it should have been all about him. And he grabbed the side and he was a bringer. He was a people who bring. And he brought the goodness and the grace and the hope of Jesus to an entire room. This is the invitation, my friends, to be people who bring. So in the next couple weeks, I'm gonna challenge you to bring peace to your house and to knock off the stupid fights. And I hope that you'll remember my friend's story and be willing to try. I'm gonna ask you to begin to give financially to Disciples Church every single time you get a paycheck right off the top so that you will become a people who bring. I'm gonna invite you to become a people of bring in your workplace. I'm gonna invite you to be a, a people who bring to your community life. 
What would it look like when every time you show up to life group, you bring something that we would become a people who bring? In a changing world right now where division wins the day, you're pro-gun, you're anti-gun, you're anti-vax, you're pro-vax, you're whatever, pick your issue. And everybody's gotta be at the extreme polarities. We are going to be a people who bring others together and who take people home to the will and way of Jesus. Father, Son, and Spirit, we submit to your way in these moments. And God, this uh, sounds good right now. Um, Well, maybe it does. Um, It sounds good to me. But I don't know how it's gonna sound tomorrow morning, Jesus. So would you uh, do the work of shaping us into a people who bring? Would you start this week by shaping us into the kinds of people who bring others together around your goodness and who bring people home to you, Jesus? We're gonna continue uh, just in a spirit of prayer and worship over the next few minutes. And I'm gonna invite you to stand to your feet in just a second. Uh, There are members of our prayer team all around the room, both in front and in back, who would love to pray with you. I am convinced with all my heart that if you're paying attention to the whisper of the Holy Spirit, you've heard him already in these moments push on you and poke at you an area where you need to become a people who bring And uh, there are people around this room that wanna grab a corner of the ark of your life and bring it into the presence of God. So go to them. Maybe uh, you know already uh, that you have a gift to bring and you wanna bring a financial gift to God and lay that down. The giving station is in the back of the room. There's instructions there, whether you wanna give digitally or text in a gift or do it online or write a check or give cash. It's all back there. We are going to become shaping We are going to be reshaped into a people who bring. So take advantage of this moment right now. Stand to your feet if you would with me. We're gonna worship together. Go see somebody for prayer. Give a gift. We'll sing a closing song and then wrap up. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may he cause his face to shine upon you in this very moment as you reshape into a person who brings.